Steve Biddulph is a world-renowned parent educator. A retired psychologist of 30 years, he continues to write and teach, authoring books such as The Secret of Happy Children, Raising Boys, The New Manhood, and 10 Things Girls Need Most, which have influenced how we view childhood development and mental health. Voted Australian Father of the Year in 2001, Steve has since been made member of the Order of Australia for his work in youth mental health and remains a patron of the Sanctuary Refugee Trust and Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. Steve Budolf, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Hello, Mia, and hello, everyone who's listening. So, you know, creativity and child development, this has really been at the core of your life's work. But just tell us, uh, you know, what was your path to becoming a child development psychologist, parent educator, and I should also say activist? Yes, well, if you go a long way back, um, I was raised in Yorkshire in England. And um, in the 1950s, Yorkshire was probably the world capital of negative parenting. But my mum and dad were a bit special. They were really affectionate. And, and part of that sort of post-war change to more, more warm and loving parenthood. And so I had a lovely start. But when we migrated to Australia, later discovered I was on the autism spectrum and that I had Asperger's syndrome. But I didn't know that back then. Um, but So when we migrated to Australia as a teenage young man, I had a lot of trouble in um, conversing or knowing how to connect with other people. When you're a little boy, it doesn't matter too much. You just run about when you're a little boy and throw balls and, and play games. But in the teen years, you really need to communicate. And I didn't know how to do that. And so I was really lucky to choose psychology because psychology um, taught me that there are rules for relating to people. And there's, there's, there's a kind of a a system for that. Um, and also I married a, a very warm-hearted woman, Sharon, my, my wife. And, um, and and then I got this incredible job working in as one of the first family therapy clinics in Australia. And, and we learned on the job and our clients taught us. And so it was just this incredible feeling of, of being helpful to people and, and actually doing some good which I think every young person needs to experience, that you can be of value to other people and contribute something. And from there, it was just like a rocket took off. You know, I wrote a book that sold 4 million copies around the world, and I became a kind of a stand-up psychologist doing shows, doing live shows everywhere. And all of a sudden, I'm 68, and um, and it's, um, it's the rocket ship is coming into land, Mia. But I'm still very concerned for the planet and it's the crisis we're in and so i'm not giving up and so i'm still writing books getting more and more focused on the attunement of ourselves and our minds with the natural world because it's make or break now that's so true and as you know we have the the one planet podcast that focuses more solely on that uh it's interesting because of your autism there are a lot of misconceptions about it in fact I was just doing the interview recently with Marcia Shiner of uh, the Integrate Autism Employment Agency which you may have heard them and yeah it seems like what I guess a common uh conception is that people with autism don't have a strongly developed emotional mm. emotional sense mm. you know so it's interesting that you have come to a profession which is so much about empathy and so I think that that kind of really turns these stereotypes we have on yes I can I think I can explain that because the, the latest thinking about this is that and certainly my experience and those of 
people I know who are more or less autistic than I am is that we have huge amounts of empathy and it just doesn't connect very well with the part of us that does the thinking. And so, and there's some, this is something that's now felt that it's, it's a wiring kind of a wiring problem and we need to um to have maps to find our way there and so someone once said you know steve you've got six or seven books about parenthood and and the mind and have you written anything for autistic people or parents of autistic young people and i thought for a second and i said look i think everything i've written is because it's my attempt to put a clear map onto the complexities of of living in a family and living in a human mind. Uh, my books are, are very, very clear. What people, you know, truck drivers read them and mums who clean motel rooms for a living read my books. So social workers say it's the only, I've been to this house, Raising Boys is the only book in the house. And so I think because I needed a clear map, that's what I wrote. And, and surprisingly, lots of people were pretty lost and they liked that as well. And so it was a lucky con congruence. Yeah, that's interesting because so many of the things we're assumed to know innately, like how to raise a child, you know, and so mm. no one, like there are these rules, but no one wrote down the rules. And, mm. and so that we do sometimes do it wrong or we don't give our children the best opportunity. And I want to go into that in your latest book. And I really liked, I mean, actually, this is like taken directly from what was written, introducing it. What if there were parts of our minds, which we never use, but if awakened could make us so much happier, connected and alive? What if awakening those parts could bring peace to the conflicts and struggles we all go through? So yes, in this new book, you explore how we become or can become more alive, more connected and more as the title, more fully human. Yes, it's a very dramatic point to the book because it, what's, what it's arguing is that, that we drastically misuse our mind and, and have neglected a, a very important part of the way our mind works in the modern world. I think that pre-industrial people and, and our, our ancestors use this very well. And that is that we have a whole right hemisphere of our brain, which doesn't think in words, which takes in the holistic picture of everything around us. We, we, we're a culture and a society. We raise our kids to be very focused and to go in a linear focused way. Anyone who's listening to the podcast will be aware that sometimes you have gut feelings about things. The book starts with a story of a patient of mine who was a, a young medical doctor, a young mother. Um, this was back in the 1980s in the early times of my practice she was in a train station in the middle of the day in the car park, uh, open air, sunny, sunlit car park in the open air, um, getting into her car. And a, a young man called out to her from across the car park, a fair way away, called out and he was clean cut. He's wearing a suit, he's good looking. And her instinct as a 1980s young medical practitioner was to be helpful. He sounded like he needed some help with something. And she thought, oh, I must see what he wants. But as she turned towards him, something deep down in her belly just went cringe like that, like a, like, a, like a tightening feeling in her gut. And before she knew it, she was having a almost a fully-fledged panic reaction and found herself jumping into her car, locking the doors and skidding out of there at speed and thinking to herself, what's wrong with me? You know, what's the matter? She got home, her children were waiting and she was busy for the rest of the day mostly put it out of her mind but that night 
she turned on the evening news, the local news, the headline was that a young woman had been attacked very violently in that same car park just minutes after she had been there by that same man. Now, she was my patient because several years later, she was having some anxiety, understandably, some anxiety problems from that. And the, of course, her feelings about the other young woman who was, was instead of her, her healing and the process of, of her putting her mental health, not just back together, but in a better place, was first of acknowledging that there was a very wise part of her which had read the picture and, and knew she was in danger somehow and set off alarm bells. And anyone listening to the podcast, if you think about it, you know what I'm talking about here, that we have gut feelings. They're a physical, actual sensation. You're having them just now, just listening to me talking. They're signals that are sent from the right hemisphere of our brain picking up things we can't consciously, haven't, haven't got time to interpret or read. It goes straight to our, our hippocampus. It doesn't feel right. It goes to our amygdala, which is our alarm system, and straight down the vagus nerve, and, and, and we feel it down in the middle of our body. So if you go there right now, listening to me, just here and now in, in the safety of our you know, interview, you, you'll feel, anyone listening, you'll feel things in your in your belly and it'll be something about you know is this guy talking sense or is this a load of rubbish or should i have gone to the toilet or you know it'll there's things going on and what the book argues is if you want to be able to parent effectively and, and live your life effectively stay in touch with that include those signals as part of your mental checking out awareness expand your awareness because you can read that every few seconds all the time and and your life will be very different so no need to buy the book we've given you the the message right there um there's a there are feelings below your feelings they're not always right but they're always worth listening to yes and you call those a super sense yes because the language of, of psychology it's called it's called parallel processing or things like that are very technical terms and but the thing i wanted to emphasize was how fantastic this is it's because it's taking in everything that you're sensing conversation if you're in a party you're only listening to one conversation but your super sense is listening to five or six conversations if someone mentions your name in one of those conversations your brain picks up someone just spoke my name across the room and lets you know that um so it's an it's just a superpower. Now, it's important to emphasize that it can be wrong because it's running things past memory. And most people have a fair bit of trauma in their lives. And so some of their memories are messed up. And so, so I had a good example was a friend in, in Coffs Harbor in, in Australia, who was a, a Vietnam veteran. He'd been a soldier in Vietnam and he was doing pretty well, but a Vietnamese refugee family came to live in his street. And he suddenly found himself having massive anxiety because no, not rocket science. They were just reminding him of the sounds and the sights of the war where he was you know, spent a whole year being like every soldier. They're just terrified. He did a brilliant thing. One, he, he worked it out. You know, he, he got his brain talking to his super sense and figured it out what it was. And Mia, what he did was he, 
he went round to their house, introduced himself, and made friends with them. And so, so he got, to, and in fact, he got to be really good friends with them. And in the process of that, he reassured his amygdala and his limbic brain that, that they were safe and they were lovely people. And this has always been my approach to trauma: that that we don't just get better; we get to a much more expanded kind of human being as we overcome this kind of damage. And so, in a nutshell, your super sense can be wrong. It can be um, pushing buttons that are just to do with your past, but you should always check that out. You know, sit with it, and 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 ask it questions. And if you say to your, you know, to your belly and you and your your heart and, the, and all that sensation all up and down in front of your body is it this it'll actually say yes or no to you you get a kind of a feeling of opening in your in your organs that feels like yes that's right um or no that's wrong and so you can explore it and it's a in therapy it's a very fruitful very rapid process but you can do it for yourself as well I want to also go into the four, you uh, conceptualize our different ways of perceiving the world as a four-story mansion, but I just also want to thank you because when you, would you talk about the super sense or the gut instinct or, you know, whatever the word is we want to put on it, mm -hmm. is that from a creative point of view or you're talking about adaptive things that we've developed over the years, like uh, for self-preservation, but I mean, I'm very much into spontaneity and things that come about through an improvised process. And sometimes mm. that there's a tendency to devalue that, the things that come quickly or easily. And I think that it is related to the super sense. Uh, I think that when things feel natural, it maybe it's tapping into something, you know, that you've known for a long time, but didn't put into words or into you know, into the world. And so I tend to trust that, but I've heard so many people say the other thing, if there's something comes too easily, oh, they distrust it. It mustn't be worth anything, whatever. But I feel it's sort of like the, you know, the flight of birds. Yes, it's graceful. Yes, they've done it for mm. you know, millennia, but it doesn't mean it's any less graceful or true. It's actually, it's more true to itself. So I, I like to hear that, uh, that point. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, it's great to talk to an artist about this because the, the, we're very clear that the, the brain recognizes beauty and quality in any art form instantly. We just know that's beautiful and we know that's good. Um, the analysis comes later. You know, how did they achieve that is, comes, comes later. But, um, but it's our right hemisphere and our gut sense because that is so more multimodal. The, the other side of our brain thinks in plodding steps, which is wonderful for building a hospital. And it's wonderful for doing brain surgery or designing spacecraft. That's what you do. But the reasons to build a hospital or to make a spacecraft comes from the other side, the, the creative beauty side. And we all know quality when we see it. And an artist knows in their own work when they have satisfied that in themselves. You can literally overthink and, and that's where we get back to your question about the, the levels of the brain and the architecture of, of the brain. Mm. And this is the, you call the four-story mansion, which is another beautiful, I would say, uh, artistic metaphor. <laughs> yes, well, once again, it, it just came to me when I was, I struggled for years and years to find a way to make simple the complexities of how neuroscience can be navigated for the average person. 
and it just suddenly hit me it's like a it's like a mansion our mind is like a mansion and a mansion has got four stories and everyone knows someone who is stuck in thinking and they think and they think and they think and they think in circles often um, and they they use words all the time and they just talk and talk and usually they're very boring they tend to be male but not not exclusively and um and we use the expression like stuck in their head sometimes and it's very clear that that people like that need to come down a floor to the next floor in the building, which is where their heart is and their emotions are. And, and just figure out what's driving you. And that's an emotional question. And so some people need to get off the third floor and come down to the second floor, which is emotion. Equally, there are people who are trapped in their feelings. And everyone listening will know someone who just emotes and emotes all over the place. And they're always angry or they're always upset or whatever it is and really needs to come up a floor and and do some clear thinking about what are your options what makes sense what's the best choice and get on it and do something and so the mobility between the floors is the key to mental health and mental freedom and what we've added of course at the start of the program was the first floor is your body as that's the ground floor and it's a large mammal body and it needs sleep and it needs food and it needs exercise and it's of course where all those you know instinctive reactions are happening as well so look after it's like a wild creature that lives inside us look after it now the fourth floor just so we can give you the picture because we don't want to overload people's brains too much we can come back and unpack them if you like but you've been hanging around on those three floors Sometimes you're up on the top floor and you notice there's some little cracks in the ceiling, like there's a trapdoor or something in the ceiling of your third floor, and there's a bit of light coming through and a, maybe a bit of sound like music or some bird sounds or something. And you get a ladder and you push the trapdoor and you go up. And what do you know? There's a rooftop garden on your mansion and you're, you're up on the roof and there's stars above you and sky and and you look around and there's birds and animals and other people and suddenly you're out of your skin and you're out of your lonely little self and you're in the domain of spirituality and all we mean by spirituality is beyond your own skin connected to everything connected to the living cosmos and so now you've got all this choice you can get in the elevator you can go up there you can go down and the secret of mental health we realize now is that mobility and 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 when what happens when you've got all four levels of your building lit up you like you turn on the lights on all the floors it's a wonderful place it's very spacious and very free and not only that but the contradictions start to fix themselves you know you realize that you've got a friend who you haven't felt good about for 10 years why are they a friend you know or you, you really don't like the person who's looking after your child say and 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 you, that contradiction just suddenly is so clear that you know exactly what you have to do and you've got the emotional conviction to do it and the clarity to do it and it even feels right in the big picture in the ecological picture you know many people leave their jobs after listening to one of my seminars they just realize their job is not good for them it's not good for the planet 
companies have stopped hiring me because I, <laughs> I have a very high attrition rate. You know, accountants go and live on farms and people become artists and, and things like that. But I'm not too worried. I think that's really rather wonderful. Yes. <laughs> that's lovely. And tell, for, for those of us who might be or feel stuck in one of those levels, uh, whether it is emotional or the overthinking, you know, logical uh, aspect, um, you know, what are ways we can, you know, move the, our lift up and down to yeah. that mobility? Yes, well, it's really just to go looking, but it can happen in a surprising ways. I, I had a, um, gave an example, it's a very personal example in the book, because I wanted people to realize that I struggled as well many times and um, and when we were a young family we had a little four-year-old boy and we were ready to have another child and we got pregnant and we were very excited to be having another child and and then in about the 12th 13th week of the pregnancy I'm not sure exactly the timing Sharon started having very strong contractions and we realized that we were having a, a miscarriage and, and many people listening have gone through this. It's a very common thing. And we rushed to hospital and, and, it, and we, we had lost that baby and um, we got home that afternoon and I had to run a weekend seminar the next day for, for 16 psychology trainees. And, and I was, I had enough sense to, to say to them what what had happened and that I wasn't my usual self because of that, but I I had a commitment to take care of them and to train them, and so I got on with it. Um, but in the days and weeks and months that followed, I I went into a very grey place, and Sharon, because of her childhood, which was also pretty rough, she found that she was doing her grieving separately. We we were sort of separated by the grief. And I was, it was bad and, and I was in terrible shape. And then one day I, we live on a farm and I went out to the seminar room where we teach some of our seminars and it's like a beautiful space. And I got my guitar off the wall and just sat down and anyone listening who is, plays music, you, sometimes you sit at the piano, you sit with the guitar, you just make sounds, you don't have a plan. And some chords started to be the ones I was playing and I realized the words and I was singing, it was the song Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones. And, and this, it starts off, goodbye, Ruby Tuesday, who could hang a name on you? And by the time I got to the end of the first verse, I just suddenly was weeping. Uh, I was sitting on the floor, I was bent forwards over my guitar, just my, almost my head on the ground, just streaming with tears, sobbing. But even in the middle of that, a tiny corner of my mind, the, the psychologist corner of my mind was thinking, wow, you know, this, this is what you needed, mate, you know, and um, this is good. This is all right. You know, um, I was, that was all it took me. I was into and through the grief, the grieving, and also a mental connection. This was a song about a, a girl who had gone and, and the connection that, we didn't know the gender of a baby or even if it really was a baby at that stage. But in my, in my soul, it was a, I realized it was a daughter that I had wanted. And I never knew that until that moment. And so I was grieving for a dream daughter. And because of being able to, you know, go down to that part of me, let it go. 
I was able to get well and to be a good husband. And then when we did have a daughter, a, a real life, wonderful daughter, I was able to love her without holding back. It was brilliant. Um, and so there are many ways to get into your heart. Um, with men, we get them in groups together because one man's story will often trigger another man and soon the whole room will be feeling those things. Art can do it. Being on, by yourself in nature can do it. But tuning into your body and just going down there and, and noticing and making space for those sensations, sometimes that's all it'll take and you'll be sobbing or you'll be raging. You'll be shuddering with the fear of a car accident that was five years ago, but has sat there inside you. It's a, it's a very wonderful thing to come alive again and fully inhabit your whole self. Oh, that's so, uh, thank you for sharing it and you, uh, helping others heal and find that there are way, there's so many ways to communicate and touch things that we don't even know are buried inside us. So, and for me, that's just the power of the arts as well. And Kristen, who is studying uh, neuroscience and also keenly interested in psychology, uh, she has some questions for you and she's been holding back quietly. Mm -hmm. Speaking of emotion, um, there's a psychology concept called catharsis. Like in psychoanalytic theory, it talks about it solves unconscious conflicts in a person's mind. So I'm curious, how do you think about like catharsis? And also, I know it kind of connects your book um, in the first chapter, Fully Human, about like discharging a person's emotion. So what do you think of like discharging a person's emotion and about its positive impact? That's a good question. And it's a, it's a, it's a, there are some subtleties to that that are important because we have, we have emotions for a reason. Um, and so it's not just a matter, it's not like taking out the garbage or something, if that makes sense. Um, imagine any, anyone who's listening to, to this podcast, imagine, for instance, that on the way to work this morning, if you were driving a car or on a, any trip you went in a car, someone suddenly almost drove their car into your lane and collided with you, and you were nearly killed by another driver. Um, we've, many of us have had that experience at some time. Some, someone's done something very stupid, but they didn't hit your car. They just missed by, you know, centimeters and they screamed away and there was nothing much you could do except continue your journey. But you're not the same as you were before that happened. You're full of emotions. And it might have, for instance, let's imagine if they had crashed into you, but the car had been driven by some really foolish teenagers who were drinking too much, you'd be very angry with them. Um, you want to make sure they got into some trouble. And so anger might have been needed. If you'd been wrecked in your car and had to fight your way out of the wreck, you would have needed the adrenaline of fear to smash windows and push your way out and perhaps save other people. If, if a pedestrian nearby had been killed by that car, you would have had an enormous amount of sorrow about it. Now, because nothing actually happened, if this is your journey to work, when you get to work, you've got all these emotions with nowhere to go. Um, what everyone almost would do is they tell all their workmates, you know, you wouldn't believe what happened, and we might burst into tears, and you might, you know, your coffee cup shaking in your hand, and and that would be a good thing because 
you would you would have leftover emotions. Does that make sense, Kristen? You'd have leftover feelings. They might have had a job to do because feelings are our friends. They're equipment to help us to get through things. It's very specific to each of those four emotions. And so we only need catharsis or you know, cleansing, if you like, letting go, um, when we've collected too many. And so with the soldiers that I would have worked with, or the policemen and, or environmental protesters or people like that, um, where they've had multiple trauma going on over time, they end up with a big collection of that. And, um, and that's what post-traumatic stress is, is. It's when you've hadn't had time to discharge and you've kept on charging with more and more and more tragedy and more and more um, horror in, in your life. And so your body then has to digest that and move it through. And so luckily now we know this is that our body is a very good guide and it takes care of itself. And so the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, intrusive thoughts and wild dreams and anxiety attacks, that's your body trying to let go of those feelings. It's, it's a very clever system that it's trying to do that. What's been missing is the emotional support, which is someone to be there who can be a container and make it safe for you. Because often when we were little kids, we weren't allowed to feel those feelings. Um, we took that on at a very deep level when we were very young. And so a therapist, or a really good friend, um, sometimes just the world of nature can give us permission and the safety that we can go further into feelings because feelings don't hurt you. you you're not you won't go crazy from crying and you won't blow up the world from anger and you won't fall to pieces if you you know feel really afraid all those things are self-limiting Kristen, that's a lot of answer does that make sense to you just listening this then yeah it makes sense a lot and also i think it's really helpful to explain like why people have mental health problems like having their emotion without fully releasing them and bring them a lot to their life. It may cause like some mental health problems. Absolutely. And, and it's not, it's not the whole picture. We all have built in vulnerabilities with, with ge genetics and epigenetics that, that also affect this. And, and so some of us need more support than others. Some are more naturally open-hearted or, or naturally sensitive. And so we have to make allowances for individual differences too. Um, you know, some mental illnesses are very um, real brain disorders, but all the same, everybody benefits from the, the lowered anxiety and the feeling of, of peace that comes when you're at, at in harmony with your feelings. Well, yes, it's so important that you identify, I mean, we all want to happiness, but you identify the value of other emotions, that we can have this constant happiness. And this is something that you've written about extensively. Uh, your books have influenced the way we look at childhood and help so many parents on their journey. And one title that particularly interests me, The Secret of Happy Children, because everyone wants to know the secret of happiness. You write that people have unhappiness programmed into them, or in effect, hypnotizing them to be unhappy adults. Sure. And now your thinking progresses over the years. And I wrote The Secret of Happy Children 38 years ago. And so what I say these days is that uh, I wouldn't take happiness as a goal because it comes and goes. And there's a lot of sadness in life. And what I'm more interested in is peace. And, and peace comes from, from being 
comfortable with the fact that that that's that there's sorrow as well but with children the the, the, the where this all started me was that i was about 21 i was a psychologist for the first time in a family therapy clinic and it was in a town in tasmania where i live i live on the, the little island down the bottom of australia the town is launceston and it was in those days was a mill town was a blue collar mill town and i was seeing families and the first thing that struck me was how amazing young parents were. They were so dedicated. They loved their children so much. And often with a lot of difficulties, I suddenly realized these are better human beings than me. And I wanted to be of, of service to them, but I also respected them. And, but there was a pattern which sometimes was happening which was that people would do what were the things that people did in the, in the 60s and the 70s. They would yell at their children, they would belt them, and they would tell them, you're no good, you're useless, because that was the long-term tradition of certainly of the Anglo-Saxon world that, that I came from, was children should have to be hammered into shape. Now, there were reasons for that if you were a servant or a a factory worker, you would starve if you weren't an obedient and compliant person. And so parents were doing that for a reason. But it was crushing the spirit of children, and it didn't work. And particularly husbands who tried to control everything, control their children, control their wives, force everyone to behave, just exploded in their face. And so we just realized that people just didn't know that it's okay to be to say nice things to your children, you know, say you're a lovely kid. I always paint this picture of a, a dad with a little boy and, and maybe the little, maybe their dog has been run over on the road. You know, they've just gone out to the road in front of the house and their dog's been killed. And the little boy's only about five and the little boy just tears fill his face. And, but his dad was a soldier in the war. And so his dad carries a lot of grief in his system. And the way we're wired up as human beings, if you, if you see someone crying, it makes you want to cry. But for the dad, that's, you know, his tears are about friends who were blown up in front of his eyes. You know, he can't begin to touch that grief or he thinks that. So he has to control everything. So he might yell at his boy saying, you know, grow up, we'll get you another bloody dog. You know, don't be stupid. He might even, you know, smack him across the side of the, you know, terrible things or just go very cold and walk away or, you know, and so all their dad has to do is say, yeah, this is really sad. It was a, he, she was a lovely dog. I'm, I'm sad too. And, you know, you're such an open-hearted kid, you know, it's all right. Let's, it's really, really sad. And dad and son are standing there and the son's just weeping into the side of his dad. It's a beautiful picture. They'll be closer for the rest of their lives from coming through that. So it's so simple, you know, and I, my work with men is like, it's turning on the lights, you know, it's really simple. And so the secret of happy children was just about, you can be affectionate, you can use praise. Yes, you went on for there, and particularly in Raising Boys, and it was a succession of, of books, The New Manhood. In Raising Boys, you identify the three stages boys go through and the effects of testosterone on development and many things and how parents can help their children through these stages and changes. Yes. One of the things that I believe, Mir, is that our lives have to be an answer to the question of our time. 
and that you're only fully human when you try and be the answer to the times you live in. And in the 1980s and early 1990s, I began to wake up to this thing. And this was, if I can portray this for your listeners, if you picture for a moment, two little babies, they're both asleep, they're wrapped up tightly, and they're sleeping soundly side by side. They look absolutely identical. They may be only you know, a few days old. But the baby on the right has got 19 times the chance of going to prison in their life, 19 times the chance of ending up in jail. They have three times the chance of dying before they're 25. They have three times the chance of being a drug addict, five times the chances of taking their own life. Now, you can't help thinking, can you, what's, what's different about the baby on the right from the baby on the left? And, of course, the difference is the baby on the right is a boy. Now, there are risk factors in being a girl, for sure, as well. And, and I focused on that in more recent years. But this incredible risk profile that goes just with being born male. And we were trying to get a handle on that because in my training, the main thing was, well, gender isn't too important. Let's just do without gender. Let's raise kids all the same. And I believe that. And I think it's a very well-intentioned and, and certainly it's important to not put gender baggage onto children. But at the same time, boys were getting worse, not better. And so we had to get the people in the gender studies department to talk to the people in the science department and in the medical and in the endocrinology departments. And my books bring together very many specialities. And so we discovered that there are stages in, in boys' development that are on a really different timetable to girls. And luckily, in the Raising Boys book, when that came out, mums and dads were like, yeah, that's right. You know, our four-year-old boy is really energetic and we thought he was bad. You know, we thought we'd raised him badly. But what you're saying is his hormones change at four. Um, he needs to run around and use his body for his brain development to go well. He needs to be very active. Now, some girls need that too. The genders overlap a lot. But in general terms, boys develop more slowly sometimes six to 12 months more slowly than girls. Some in the puberty years, it can be a couple of years more slowly. And if we know about that, we know if we know the stages of boyhood, then we can respond appropriately. So you also mentioned like there are different methods about raising a boy and also raising a girl. So do you think, what do you think about like the gender differences and such, for example, such as the so-called masculinity and femininity in psychology and as well as being a parent? Yes. Okay, this is another really great question. Now, the, the, the starting point of this is to realize that just knowing a child is a boy or a girl doesn't tell you anything about that individual child. Our job as a parent is to work out kind of what, what is my child like? Um, because there are some very girlish boys and very boyish girls. And, and the science behind this is so interesting. For example, if you take samples of umbilical cord blood, which is the blood in the umbilical cord when a baby's born, often that is kept for, for study. And what they discovered was that in that cord blood, 
some boys have very high levels of testosterone and some have much less. And that presumably reflects what was also the case in the womb in pregnancy. And so there's a spectrum of, if you like, a spectrum of maleness, even just within males. Now, somebody got, and we, we got into the science of this, it's all sort of written up in the Raising Boys book in, in your more recent editions, because this is quite new, is that some boys have a lot of difficulty with reading. Uh, some boys have literacy issues all through their lives. And it was discovered that it's the, almost universally, it's the high testosterone boys who have literacy problems. There's a, there's a very strong correlation. Now, what that means is, is that if you've got a boy who's, who's high testosterone nature, you have to, from as early as possible, read to him lots of stories and, and cuddle him a lot and get his social side developed because we're always parenting our children to fit in the world of tomorrow not the world of yesterday. And the world of tomorrow, it's a fairly safe, but we don't want men who can wrestle buffalo anymore. That kind of masculinity is not needed so much now. What we need is men who are great communicators and loving fathers and can work alongside women really well. And so, so we, gotta ha we have to take those high testosterone boys and help them with reading and language and emotionality. Whereas a low testosterone boy might be quite meek and shy and quiet and maybe he just needs a little bit um, of what you would do with your daughter which is teach them to stick his jaw out and stand up for himself and use a loud voice and if he wants to be in a you know a caring gentle profession to not put stereotypes onto him that he's got to play rugby and and live up to dad's stereotypes and so we we want to have flexibility with the genders but at the same time, you know, with, with girls, there's a massive problem with girls' mental health. And the reason I wrote the book, 10 Things Girls Need Most, was one in five girls in the Western world is now on anxiety medication. There's an enormous, something like half of all girls carry out self-harm at some time. And that's been an epidemic growth in self-harm. Other things are not so bad. With, with some things in mental health are improving, but some are drastic. And, and so, for instance, we think that girls definitely need father's involvement very close to them so that they believe in themselves and know that they're interesting to men and, 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 and men respect their intellect. Um, girls need aunties who can be a, a, a role model to different kinds of femininity or different kinds of womanhood. Girls need to be in nature a lot, moving their bodies a lot, and they need to not be in the world of social media, which is very toxic um, because of the wiring of a girl's mind to overwhelm her with kind of criticism and hostile kind of environment. Now, it's not that the genders are separate, or certainly not that we want them to go separate ways. We want to bring them together, but from the, the biological substrate that they begin from, we can do that best. Yeah, it totally makes sense for like gender is like different biologically, but they can be seen holistically in a larger aspect. So also you're talking about like the overexposure of internet to girls. So how do you evaluate like that kind of effect of like exposure to electronic devices like social media, internet, you mentioned before, as well as like video games? I mean, basically it's, 
realizing that we are a wild creature and a wild creature has to be taken care of. And one of the gender differences, which is again, is a continuum, it's not a sharp delineation. We, we came from a hunter-gatherer society and for most of history, we worked in very small groups. We're in a related group of about 20 people who lived continuously all related. The reason we triumphed as a species was because we were fantastic at teamwork. Particularly, the women were especially good at teamwork. And so our, our brain was attuned and was actually designed for being able to read everyone's emotions in our team. So we knew if someone was out of sorts, so we knew if someone was upset, and we would move to fix that. And so parents will know that their, their daughter will come home really worried by a comment that someone made at school. Um, it's not very common for your son to come home with that sort of worry. Um, so it's a, it's a talent, it's an ability, which most girls have. But because of that, it was designed for only knowing 20 people, Kristen and Mia. And so the internet brings thousands of people into your mental ecosystem. If you're on Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook, there's thousands of people, and some of them, it's not that not it's worse than that. They don't care. They are they are actively hostile to your existence, and they they get off on frightening you or harming you. And we unwittingly we just gave our kids these devices and let them wander in those you know in the alleyways of the world. Now, and I have a Facebook community of of parents of girls, and and we arrived at this because the very wise parents in that community don't have devices in the bedroom, don't even have smartphones until you're about 15 or 16. If you need a phone, have a dumb phone. Many families today have this thing at tea time, at dinner time of a night, they put their devices on the chargers, parents and kids in the kitchen, have all the chargers in the kitchen, plug them in, eat dinner. Don't take those devices up again till the next morning. And the experience of those families is that their daughters have a good night's sleep. They're not waking up as around about a third of girls in the world are, which is waking up to check social media after midnight and getting worried about, about it. These girls have a good night's sleep. They're cheerful in the morning. They're keen to get to school, talk to their friends. They haven't been up all night worrying about what someone said to someone else. And so it's our job as parents, we know to, you know, to chase a pedophile out of the playground and ring up the police. And we know to fasten their seatbelts and we know not to feed them too much sugar. And we also have to keep the hyenas of, of social media out of their heads. It takes backbone to be a parent. But what we gain from our Facebook community, which I know the irony of this is the social media community. We gain backbone by talking to our friends and by all being on the same page. And it, it helps if everyone you know is doing the same thing. Um, we can make a stand and our kids soon get over it and, and they're just so much happier. I mean, there are many ways that childhood seemed slower, the growing up process, the period of innocence, although there was a lot of self-reliance as well in other ways where people, children could maybe go outdoors more and were a little bit less you know, terrified of those experiences. But yes, with the social media and I, I don't know what it's like to grow up as a, as a child of today. And I imagine mm. that you have to revise some of your books that were written before. Yes, well, we revise the books all the time. But, but the, and the emphasis has changed because um, today love has a new enemy 
um, the enemy of love today is hurry, because of course everyone loves their children and, and has intense feelings towards them and cares so much. But if you're hurrying, if your day is hurried, love is about connection and it's about getting really aligned even between husband and wife or partners. You know you're loved when you have someone's full attention. And if all those moments are glancing moments, if they're just kind of sort of like rocks banging against each other, the love doesn't happen and it isn't felt and it, it, it diminishes. A marriage can end and children can get into strife because there was something they really needed to tell you that afternoon and it was just too busy. So this is something I really, if I could write this on the sky, you know, if I could get one of those planes, it's, you know, slow down. And the world, you know, the world is insane. It wants you to buy stuff and work harder and work longer. And the pandemic has kind of started to break this. And, and climate change and the, the madness of consumerism is starting to question this. Because what's bad for us is bad for the planet. And when we slow down, then we don't need as much stuff. And we, we start to take our joy on, in the human level of, of our neighbours and our garden and on our pets and, our, and each other. And so it's a kind of, you know, if you want to anything, you know, if your family is going wrong in some way, think, okay, who are the two people that are not getting along? Who's who, who, like, if you're a parent, which of your child, which of your children concerns you the most? Take a two day break with just that child. Go somewhere, preferably somewhere very simple and basic where you have to cook food and look after yourselves and and what will happen is that whatever's wrong between you will come to a head. And you, you'll find out that they've been angry with you for six months about something. And you get to apologize for that. There's this beautiful story about this in, in one of my, in my Raising Girls talk that I do. And, and the girl's been angry for years with her dad. And it just all comes out. And the dad has got the backbone to say, you're right. I, I haven't been what you needed. I haven't been the dad you needed me to be. And I'm really sorry. And and I, I want to make that up. I want to be different for, from now. And this is a teenage girl who's been in a lot of trouble. And I know that girl. She was one of my patients. And she's a different woman now. She's a fantastic woman. And because her parents got it together at the very last minute, you know, she was 17, drug problems, promiscuity problems, all kinds of risk in her life, turned around because her parents... Her dad took her away for one week camping in the tropics and, um, and they got to the bottom of what had gone wrong. But it can be just mum and dad going away or it can be mum and son going away. Love is a one-to-one -one thing. And so we have to kind of carve out a little bit of time with each person in our family to make it work well. Yeah, it's, it's so important, but we don't give ourselves the luxury of time, it seems. Uh, we have always find different ways to fill it. I, I like also that you bring spirituality into this and you actually unite the idea of the environment with spirituality. And I think without, without even you know, being explicit about that it's necessarily one faith or another. And when I think about faith, 
and what it is, it's different things to different people, but it's this kind of this invisible support. And there's this story that if you ask someone to cross a, a desert alone and, and tell them they have nothing to support their thirst, uh, they, they can't do it. But if you give them a flask full of water and say, even this is just for you to have, don't drink from it, but you, you have it there in case you need it. Uh, and that's a little bit like what faith is. You can do amazing things that you didn't know that you could by having that there. To me, um, it's, it's simply a fact that we're just leaves on a tree, Mia. Um, we, we feel separate. And certainly in our modern left brain logical selves that 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 we experience ourselves as separate but if you go down to your super sense and you and you feel the wild creature that that's you know the jaguar or the brown bear that's living inside you that doesn't feel separate so the things that people instinctively do going to the beach to surf or to swim or to walk in the in the rain on the beach going to rave parties and and getting off their face even these are all spiritual pursuits they're all attempts to feel at one with the world and to feel lost in, in the world. And what I wrote about in the fully human book, that the thing is it's in some ways it's wasted if you don't realize that. You can make love with your partner and just be as ordinary as having an ice cream, or it can be as profound as, as surrendering your whole ego to, to the beauty of being with another person. It's a spiritual activity. And so faith traditions are attempts to provide some framework for that. And, you know, you go to a, a mosque or a cathedral, but it's the mosque or the cathedral is built with huge pillars like the forest of the trees and, and the, the beautiful light coming in the window like it does in the glade in the forest. And so it's to create awe and grandeur and to create community. You know, Buddhists, Buddhists are very explicit. You'll, you won't achieve enlightenment without the community of faith around you it's it's saying that we our brains are not very good at this stuff and so we need these aids to help us along and and a religious practice reminds you once a week or once a day or whatever it is of the totality and it resets your brain you know it hauls you up to the roof garden and says look at the stars you know remember you're just elite you know so i'm i'm getting old now and i've had you know, a couple of health dramas, as my readers know, and I'm fine now, but I'm cool with that. I'm, I'm a leaf on the tree, and one day I'll fall to the ground, but the tree's going to still be there. I'm, I'm worried about, you know, massively activated about climate because, because I want the tree to be there. I don't want a dead tree on a dead planet. I want our children to thrive for a thousand years. And I think that being fully human Will help that because if you're listening to your super sense if you're living in the whole mansion you will harmonize everyone around you your family your friends your workplace everything you're in the society around you you'll start to it's like having your um your antenna switched on and you'll be attuned and your and your efforts will be attuned if you're in an activist group you'll work with beautiful harmony in what you do you want to create a backlash you want to create aggression people say those people they're, they're so happy and they're so constructive in what they're doing i really want to join that movement and that's gonna that's what's happening that's what's happening with extinction rebellion and with greta thunberg and with the green movement in my state they're, they're joyful people doing great things and people are drawn to the hope of that i'm worried but i'm 
full of hope as well and, and will continue to be. I just I just want to ask you in closing, because as you bring up thoughts about the future and what connects us all, as you think about the future and climate crises and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what kind of world do we want to live in? You know, what are areas that you think need urgent uh, attention and what changes would you like to see take place? Yes, I think I think we need to stop voting for stupid people. We have to sort of get focused here, and and that there are really terrible people in power in in my country. There, um, I don't know where they found them, Mia. To be honest, until recently, there was in the United States, and there still is in 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 the UK. Um, we look to people like Angela Merkel, to Jacinda Ardern, um, and and now to Joe Biden in the US with enormous relief that, that there are leaders who are warm and caring, that are, are, are like are fully human. Their hearts are involved because our emotions are not a weakness. Our emotions are part of the intelligence that we have. And so look for leaders who you'd want to be, um, you'd want them to be your dad. You'd want them to be your husband or your wife or your mom. And, and those are the, you know, in Germany, Angela Merkel was, is called Mutti. She's called Mother. That's her nickname. Vote for, vote for nice people <laughs> because politics is a big part of this. And um, uh, we can change a lot, but we have to change the big picture as well. I guess just in closing, it's you've learned so many lessons and you've so much to teach that you've passed on through your books. But, you know, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, that we love you. And, and you're so precious and amazing. It's a tough time to be alive, but you've got what it takes. And, and we'll, we'll be here for you as long as we've got breath in our bodies. We'll, we'll support you and we'll work for you. Um, but please feel our love because, yes, soon enough it'll all, all be in your, we'll be gone and it'll all be in your hands. Well, thank you, Steve Biddle, for your insights into child development, emotional intelligence, and parenting that help us lead happier lives full of meaning and purpose and allow us to be more fully human. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia, and thank you, everyone. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Kristen Shen with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Jacob A. Preisler. Digital media coordinators are Megan Hagenbarth and Jacob A. Preisler. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.